Well, at this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us here this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans Chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and let's focus our attention beginning in verse 22. Beginning in verse 22. 
professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Then verse 25, speaking of the same persons who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now we've seen in verses 18-32 through in this first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans that Paul is establishing this important theological point of the sinfulness of mankind. He's just spoken in verse 17 of the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that we all need. Why do we all need it? Because we're all unrighteous. Verse 18, he speaks of God's wrath being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We've broken the first half of God's law, our duty toward God, ungodliness. That's our violation of the first table of the law. We've broken the second half, the second table of the Ten Commandments, the last six commands, our duties toward others. And so, we're unjust, we're unrighteous, and we deserve the wrath of God. Paul demonstrates this first by showing that the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations that have been without, for the most part, without the Word of God, without the ordinances of God, without God's covenant of grace, they've been outside of any type of privilege of that kind. They haven't received special revelation from God. And they're all in need of the righteousness of God. They're all unrighteous and ungodly. He goes on in chapter 2 eventually to speak of the Jewish people. They've had these outward privileges. They've had the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures. They've had the ordinances of God, the oracles of God, the covenant of God. And yet, for the most part, they are unconverted. They are ungodly, unrighteous, and in need of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Certainly all of them need it by nature. And most of them have not yet taken hold of it through faith in the Gospel. So Paul's establishing human sin in chapter 1, speaking here of the Gentile nations. But he's not only concerned with individuals, Paul has a cosmic outlook, a historical outlook on the corporate sinfulness, not just individual sinfulness, but the corporate decline in morality and spirituality, even among those who come into this world dead in trespasses and sins, yet their depravity, their sinfulness, gets worse and worse and worse. And we said that there are a number of stages that Paul sets forth in this chapter. Stages of decline. And the first one we saw was ingratitude. They didn't take hold of the knowledge of God revealed in creation and conscience and respond. They didn't respond by glorifying God as God. They had the knowledge of God, but they didn't receive it and act on it and embrace it. Instead, they rejected it. And they were ungrateful. They didn't worship God as He ought to be worshipped. And they didn't thank Him. But they became, because of that, futile in their thoughts. Verse 21. So the next stage, God judges their refusal to worship Him, their refusal to act upon the knowledge they had, their ungrateful attitude. He judges them by causing them to be given over 
to this foolishness. And we said the second stage is characterized by idolatry. Idolatry. They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what was the result? Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. In other words, they have the knowledge of God and creation and conscience. That includes the knowledge of what's right and wrong. But professing to be wiser than God, they became fools. They became intoxicated upon their own intellectual capabilities and they turned a blind eye to God's revelation in creation and conscience and they embraced their own opinions, their own imaginations, their own ideas, their own preferences. Now we, we see this, we mentioned when we talked about the intellectual idolatry that is presented here, that this is very much the same in our own society. That not only uh, natural revelation, general revelation in creation and conscience, but we've received the Bible, special revelation. And we've done the same thing. We didn't glorify God as God. We didn't give Him the credit. We were ungrateful. And God gave us over, especially during the Enlightenment of the 18th century, the 1700s leading up to the formation of the United States of America and the embracing of the U.S. Constitution. Around that time, God gave us over as a society to intellectual idolatry. We professed to be wise. And we saw in the handout we looked at a few weeks ago that so many of our founding fathers professed to be wiser than God such that Thomas Jefferson is seeking to uh, mine out jewels out of the dunghill of the New Testament. He, he's, he's found some jewels, but the rest of it is a dunghill. He professed to be wise and thought that he could set the tone for a moral, peaceful righteous, ethical society that embraced the moral teachings of Jesus on the, base of, on the basis of His own uh, carving and shaping of Christianity to His own liking. And we saw the foolishness of that. Just, you know, look at what's happening in our society today. I think providence has proven that to be foolish. So there's this intellectual idolatry. But that intellectual idolatry that obsession with our own ideas, refusing to submit to God's truth and God's revelation, and instead embracing our own ideas, that produces religious idolatry. That produces religious idolatry. Notice verse 22, the intellectual idolatry leads to verse 23, the religious idolatry. What happens when we profess to be wiser than God? That foolishness finds its way into our notion of God and our notion of how God ought to be worshipped. So verse 23, they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and various animals. So the intellectual idolatry leads to the religious idolatry. Same thing is true verse 24, verse 25 rather, those who exchange the truth of God for the lie. In other words, those who embrace the intellectual idolatry. We don't care about God's truth. We get to decide what truth is. What did those people do? They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
So man is an intellectual creature. Man is also a religious creature. And when man becomes an intellectual idolater rejecting God as the standard of truth and righteousness, man becomes a religious idolater. Religious idolatry. That's what we're thinking about this morning. And uh, I'm not sure if we'll get through all of it this morning, but we're, we're beginning that consideration. Now, what is religious idolatry? What is its basic character? Well, idolatry in general involves replacing God. Exchanging God. That's the idea here. You're trading God. You're changing one out for another. You're taking God. You're exchanging Him for someone or something else. That can be a false God. That can be Allah or Buddha or some God of your own imagination. It can be another God. You can replace God as the object of your worship with some other God. Or you can replace the true God with images or representations of the true God. You can replace the true God who is incorruptible and spiritual and invisible and transcendent, who who is not material. And you can replace the place of God in our worship with material representations that take the place of God. So rather than by faith, spiritually perceiving the real God and His real presence here in our midst, our eyes and ears and senses can be diverted to physical, tangible, created things in order to make God feel closer to us, to make God feel more knowable. It's too hard to commune and fellowship with an invisible spiritual God. So we need to come up with a tangible God made of material things, the the smells and bells, the sights and sounds, things that will take the place of God. So you can replace God with a false God, or you can try to worship the true God by way of these substitutes, this sort of liturgical pornography whereby you seek to commune with your covenant God by way of these pictures these images, which by the way, don't look anything like him. And he's just as offended, if not more, than a spouse whose spouse was, was saying, well, I'm, I'm thinking about you while I look at this pornography. God hates it. His nature, his name is jealous. And he will not be replaced. He will not be exchanged. He will not be supplemented. This is at the very nature. This is at the very essence of what offends God the most. To be exchanged. To be traded in. To be cashed in for something else. You think of Judas betraying the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Trading Him. Exchanging Him. What is God worth to you? What is the experience of God in His ordinances by which He conveys Himself who He is, by which He brings you into that covenant fellowship with Himself. How valuable is that to you? How sufficient is that to you? Do you need to supplement that? Do you need to add certain things to make God feel closer? To make God feel more knowable? To make God really feel like you want Him to feel? Is He enough for you? Is He of infinite value? Or would you trade Him in? Would you trade him in for the supposed pragmatic value of false religion? 
The basic character of idolatry, replacing, exchanging, supplementing God, it comes into play with religious idolatry in terms of the object and means of our worship. And you see this in the Ten Commandments. The very foundation of the moral law of God is this sovereign prerogative that God has, that He's jealous and zealous over. That number one, you're not going to have any other gods before Him or in His presence. God is the only God, and what God claims as a prerogative for Himself, you're not to scatter and, uh, you know, uh, you're not to give it to anyone else or anything else. The fact is, God Himself is Jehovah, the only living and true God. So you can't give worship to any created thing. God alone, the Creator, is the object of our worship. And anyone or anything else that we give worship to is an idol and He hates it. Secondly, the second commandment says, okay, now we've established the object of our worship. We're to worship the living and true God, Jehovah. Second commandment says, you need to worship God in accordance with His own commands. And it gives an example of unbiblical worship in either making or bowing down to, or giving heart worship to an image. So don't worship God by way of images or anything else that's contrary to His Word. And it's so explicit in the second commandment. It's so significant in that commandment. God actually says that those who worship Him according to His commandments are such as love Him. And He'll show mercy to those who love Him and keep His commandments to the thousandth generation. So, My friends, if you want the love and covenant mercy of God to be extended to your children, not saying every single one as a guarantee, but generally to your children, to their children, and to a thousand generations, one of the surefire ways to hinder that from happening is to embrace unbiblical worship. Any unbiblical elements of worship in your relationship to God. Public, private, family. You need to be giving God what He's asked for. And he says that those who don't do that, those who come and approach Him with offerings, with elements of worship of their own devising, and they don't follow His commandments, they're such as hate Him. And He will visit the iniquity of those persons upon their children and their children's children and so on to the third and fourth generation. This is a big deal. The first two commandments in the moral law of God address this idolatry. And specifically here, we're thinking of the religious aspect of it. How we worship God. And the Bible presents idolatry as spiritual adultery. God, as I said, is jealous. To put anyone or anything else into the place of God or to attribute any of His attributes to anyone or anything else or to love someone or something else in the way we should only love God, to make that thing the center of our lives, and so on. In any way, to do that is cheating on our covenantal spouse. It is spiritual adultery. And to bring in any other representations of God into our relationship with God other than the ones He's revealed in His Word is spiritual pornography. And we need to recognize that. So that's the basic character of religious idolatry. Secondly, we see its various aspects. Its various aspects. 
Uh, first, will worship. Will worship. That's a phrase from Colossians 2, verse 23, which speaks of man-made religion. And I think in the New King James, it talks about self-imposed religion. You can translate this in different ways, but I think the King James says will worship. In other words, worshiping according to what you want or according to human preferences, not in accordance with the revealed will of God in Scripture. And you can see that this religious idolatry that's described in Romans chapter 1 is of man's own devising. Notice the fact that these images are made. Verse 23, change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. So this is, this is, we're talking about something that somebody made. Who made it? Man made it. And why did man make it? Because man wanted to make it. And why did man make it the way that man made it? Because man wanted to make it the way that man wanted to make it. It's a human preference. It's a human desire. It's a man-made object or means of worship. These images are created by men. And you can see verse 22. They think that their image makes sense. They're professing themselves to be wise. It's their intellectual idolatry that says, we can define who God is. We can define truth. We can define righteousness. We can define how God is to be worshipped. We can put our Thomas Jefferson thinking caps on and we can figure it all out and come up with the way that things ought to be. And we make the idols according to our human preferences. And Paul says, Colossians 2.23, that is self-imposed man-made religion and God will not be pleased with it. In fact, God hates it. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, God says, don't add or subtract from my ordinances of worship. Don't add to them. Don't subtract from them. Jesus confronts the Pharisees of His own day for their man-made religious hand-washing ritual that they performed day after day, meal after meal. He refused to participate in it. And He quotes Isaiah chapter 29 uh, in Mark 7-7, In vain they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. So, what, what is he critiquing there? Will worship. Laying aside God's ordinances, God's commandments, in favor of the teachings and doctrines of men. Any worship, anything in our religious life that does not have biblical warrant in it, needs to be weeded out because God hates it. And what happens is, with will worship, it's not just the way in which we worship God, but when we begin to approach the true God through these man-made elements of worship, very quickly our knowledge of the true God is polluted and corrupted. And, and really there are two ways in which it happens. Number one, because God's elements of worship, you think of the Word and prayer and singing the Psalms, and all of these things that have theological content that shape our view of God, when we approach God in different ways, no doubt, we're going to get a different impression of who God is. Slowly, it's going to, 
it's going to impact our view of God. If we replace God's songs for worship with man-made songs, they're different. The lyrics are different. And our knowledge of God, our understanding of God is going to be different over time, over the years, over the decades, over the centuries. Eventually, we're going to lose whatever that content in the Psalms was that was supposed to show us who God is. That's going to be marginalized and diluted and we're going to begin to think of God more so the way Isaac Watts thought of God than the way the Holy Spirit thinks of himself. And so eventually, it dilutes our knowledge of God. The other thing is, if we're empowered to craft elements of worship and methods of worship according to our own opinions and preferences, eventually that's going to empower us to go a step further and say, well, if I have the authority to do that, then, then I guess I have the prerogative to define who God is. And so our man-made religion in terms of the second commandment leads us to a man-made worship in terms of the first commandment, the object of worship. And we make a Mr. Potato God and we decide what His attributes are according to our own opinions and our own preferences with our buffet worship style. And that is will worship, and God hates it. Secondly, as we look at these various aspects of religious idolatry, there is image worship. You see that in our text, verse 23, that these nations changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Now that image began in their imagination. And you can see the word imagination. Children, you can see in the word imagination, the word image. So that imagination of man professing himself to be wise, thinking he has all the answers, that imagination, that speculative imagination of man eventually manifests itself in images that are brought in to the worship of God. As I mentioned, the motivation for this is often that we want to make God more real. There are people that need to know about God and they struggle to connect with an invisible, supreme, sovereign God who is spiritually present. And so we need to bring in things to make God more real. We need stained glass windows with images of God the Son incarnate. We need these paintings of God as an old man reaching out His hand. We need images. We need something tangible. We need statues. We need medallions and and, uh, rosaries and all kinds of things. We need all these visible tokens, these visual worship aids. By nature, even the pagans knew that God is invisible. His invisible attributes were revealed. But pragmatically, you see, professing ourselves to be wiser than God's revelation We need to impose and introduce these things to make God seem more real to the average person. And the Greek philosophers often recognized the foolishness of making idols, and you know they they would talk about how you know that the idol is not really anything in itself, but it's for the common people. You see, and there's sort of an intellectual superiority complex here as well that uh, behind the scenes religious leaders game plan, okay, how can we approach, how can we, how can we reach the common people? Well, they're going to need statues and all of these smells and bells. Uh, by the way, Jesus preached to the common people, and the common people heard him gladly. They didn't need to see 
all these things. They heard him gladly. They heard his doctrine gladly. And they were able to understand it without idols. But they think it'll make God more real, more knowable. People aren't going to know who Jesus is unless they see this, this uh, tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed man with a shepherd's staff hold, you know, holding a lamb over his shoulder. They're not going to understand that he's the good shepherd unless we can make him more knowable through these images and idols. And we can make God more present. God seems absent until you build a cathedral and you have all these things so that people can walk in and see all of the images And God is more present to them. And understand, idolatry throughout the ages has very rarely involved the idea that that block of wood that's been carved out is a God in itself. This is is not, if we think idolatry is the idea that there's a statue and that statue is actually a sovereign God that you need to worship, that's virtually never been, even in pagan nations, the idea The idea is that God is so far beyond us. God is so far beyond us in the heavens that we need to bring Him down to our level through these visual worship aids to make Him more present. And so these visual worship aids are significant. They're holy. We should be reverent toward them. We are worshiping them in a sense, but they don't believe that that's the actual God. Okay? And you see this in Exodus chapter 32, one of the classic examples of image worship in the Scriptures. Exodus 32 verse 1 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us, For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So notice, Moses, and in one sense legitimately, as the mediator here, made God seem close to the people. God spoke through Moses, God worked through Moses, and God used Moses to manifest His presence in the midst of the people. But Moses goes up on the top of Mount Sinai to receive revelation. And he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And at some point during that period of time, the people get a little antsy. They're saying, look, Moses hasn't come down the mountain. Moses is gone. Perhaps he's never coming back. Perhaps he's dead. Perhaps we don't know. It's it's all uncertain And so now, because we don't have Moses, we lack the presence of God in our midst. Now, why did they say that? Because they were unconverted. Most of these people are unconverted. And so they don't have a spiritual relationship with God. So they need to bring in something to restore that sense of God's presence. They had Moses, just like many people today. Uh, they, They feel close to God when they're in a church service and there's a priest or religious leader something like that. They go to confession to the priest and that religious leader gives them a sense that maybe they have some kind of relationship with God when they're dead as a doornail spiritually and they don't have a relationship with God. That's these people. And so when Moses is out of the picture, they don't have a relationship with God. They don't know what to do. So they need to come up with something to fill in the gap. And what do they do? They revert back to their experience in the land of Egypt. They say, Um, let's make a golden calf. 
and uh, make us gods or make us a god because the plural and the singular is the same word in Hebrew. Uh, Make us gods, make us a god that shall go before us because Moses isn't here. We don't sense God's presence among us. And uh, you can see verse 4, they received all the gold jewelry from the people. uh, And uh, we're told that Aaron fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they made all these burnt offerings to the Lord, Jehovah, the Lord. So the calf is not a false god. The calf is a visible representation of the true God, Jehovah, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. This is your God, O Israel. Now the New King James has that word God in lower case. But I think you could, you could make a case that it could be the capital G. Because they're saying this is the true God. This is Jehovah. We're going to have a feast to Jehovah. We're going to worship Jehovah. We're going to sacrifice all these animals to Jehovah. This is the God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We don't have Moses, so we're going to fill in that void with an image. This golden calf. You see, the church is tempted to that even today. Because our greater Moses has gone and ascended up the mountain. Holy Mount Zion. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's not with us physically tangibly. Now, He's provided for that absence, that physical absence, by the presence of His Holy Spirit. He has not left us as orphans. He's present in the life of His church when we gather for worship. Jesus is real. He's present by faith in the heart of every believer. He's here right now. He's receiving our worship. He's empowering our worship. He's proclaiming His truth through our worship. He's singing the Psalms, as it were, with us and in us and through us in the midst of His brethren. But where people are dead and spiritually unregenerate, they're not going to have that. So they're going to have to fill that in. And where churches are filled with a a large number of unregenerate people, they're going to have to fill in that sense of His presence by these pictures of Jesus as the Good Shepherd, by these images and idols and innovations that they bring into the worship of God. Because... Our greater Moses is not here with us. Is he coming back? We don't know. We're so concerned. Let's just make all of these images and idols and bring them into the life of the church. Uh, That's a huge problem today. But the Bible condemns that. The Bible says you actually can't do that by definition. God is the creator. And any image you make of him is going to be part of the creation. And you're going to be exchanging the infinite, eternal, sovereign, transcendent God for just a piece of created material. Listen to uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I just want you to keep in mind the emphasis on God's Word as we move into the next verse. 
O Zion, you who bring glad tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So it's calling God's people throughout the ages to behold their God. Now this is a messianic prophecy. John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, the coming of Christ. We behold God in the face of Jesus Christ. But it's also a general exhortation. We need to look to and behold our God. How do we do that? We do it through His Word. Either the eternal Word incarnate during His earthly ministry or the written Word of God. The Gospels, the Psalms, all of these accounts of His inward and outward life we see His glory in the Word that stands forever, not in these earthly things that fade like the flowers. Now listen, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who are with young speaking of the compassion and love of God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, so He's infinite, He's sovereign, He's all-knowing, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His Counselor has taught Him, He's superior in every way. He's everything you could ever desire in a God and then some. All of His glorious attributes. With whom did He take counsel and who instructed Him and taught Him in the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, He lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. Just His His majesty is such that he could just hold the world on the tip of his finger. The world, the nations, verse 17, are before him as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Now here it is, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? What this is telling us, it's a rhetorical question, the answer is no one and nothing. This is telling us that we can't compare God to other things in such a way as to make these images and idols that, well, if, if, we make, if we paint a picture of God the Father like this, no, you can't liken Him to anything. He is God. There are analogies in the Bible that we find helpful, but God Himself is unique. He's incomparable. To whom will you liken Him? No one. Nothing. You can't compare Him with anything. So you'd better just envision Him and read His Word and come before Him by faith. The real God, the One who will shepherd you, the One who will protect you, the One who will be compassionate and faithful towards you. Not the idol, not the image, which can do nothing for you. Verse 19, the workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution. So they're, they're, they're putting all of this wood and precious metals together. But notice, 
Verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. On and on we could read. Verse 25, to whom will you liken me? God will not be mocked. God will not be satisfied. God will be angry every time we try to come up with a substitute. Every time we try to come up with our own representation of Him. No, His Word is sufficient. His ordinances are sufficient. And we could quote Scripture passages till we're blue in the face. Jeremiah chapter 10. Even at the end of 1 John, he says, Look to Christ. He Himself is eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from these cheap substitutes. Thirdly, creature worship. We've seen will worship, image worship, creature worship. Verse 25, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. When we begin to worship the true God according to images, it's not long before those images take on such a substantial religious significance that we begin to transfer the godness of God to these other things. And that is to open Pandora's box. You can read Deuteronomy 4, 15-19 where God says, I did not represent Myself on Mount Sinai I was invisible. I didn't give you a form or a shape to see and to look upon. Therefore, don't make images of me. And he goes on to say, not just don't make images, but do not worship the sun, moon, and stars. Don't take things that are already visible in the creation which reflect my glory and turn them into objects of worship as was so common in the pagan world. We ought not to worship anyone or anything that is created. We ought not to worship the sun, moon, and stars. We ought not to worship Mary or the saints or angels. Even the angel in the book of Revelation says, John, don't bow down before me. Don't worship me. Worship God. To pray or to offer worship to anyone or anything other than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a wicked form of idolatry, which is, of course, redundant. It's creature worship. Mary can't hear your prayers anyway, by the way. She's in heaven. And um, only God is omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent, everywhere present, to be able to hear your prayers. It's because Jesus is both God and man that the man Christ Jesus in heaven can receive and intercede for every prayer that's prayed simultaneously throughout the world at any given time by His people. Mary can't hear your prayers. The saints can't hear your prayers. Uh, But to even attempt to do that is creature worship. We see in our own culture and throughout history, hero worship, ancestor worship. We see leaders and rulers in the church and in the state given worship, like Nebuchadnezzar who raised up that golden image. And as soon as the instruments would play, everybody had to hit the dirt and bow down to the state religion. We see more and more of the state in our own day 
What are they doing? They're requiring us to give to them things that only God can require. We're, we're not only required to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we're required to give to Caesar things that God Himself claims, like our children, or our bodies, or so on and so forth. The state has become a Leviathan. The state has become a god. Now, God calls the civil magistrates gods in the sense of exalted ones, but they're under Him. And when they take the prerogative of Jehovah Himself, He says, you'll die like men. You can read that in Psalm 82. Leaders in the church can claim divine prerogatives. The Pope claims infallibility. He's called the Pope, which, is, which means Papa, Father. He's taking upon Himself to be the earthly Father of the church. Jesus says you have one Father, the Father who is in heaven, so don't buy into some kind of earthly Papa, Father figure who comes into the church, 2 Thessalonians 2, sits down in the temple of God and demands to be worshipped as God. The Pope who claims to be Christ's representative with that full sovereign authority on earth. So He takes the place of the Father, He takes the place of the Son, and of course when Jesus went into heaven, He left his own vicar or vicarious representative, we're told, the Holy Spirit, not the Pope. So, when the Pope claims to be the vicar of Christ on his fancy hat, he's trying to take the place of the Holy Spirit. So, he's taking the place of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that is creature worship. But there's also the concern of devil worship. One aspect of religious idolatry that is often ignored is devil worship. We know Satan is an opponent of the creator-creature distinction. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, he desired to be like the Most High. He doesn't want to be a creature. He wants to be equal with the Creator, if not above God Himself. So Satan is an opponent of this creator-creature distinction. Therefore, Satan himself is the architect of idolatry. Our, Our hearts are idol factories, as John Calvin said, but Satan is playing us like a fiddle, and he is the architect of idolatry as it is institutionalized throughout the world. That's why when God forbids idolatry in the Old Testament, he says that you ought not to offer up these sacrifices to demons when you worship a false god or you worship me in a false way you are worshiping devils you're worshiping demons leviticus 17 verse 7 deuteronomy 32 verse 17 and those are just two of a whole slew of passages that tell us what paul says in first corinthians chapter 10 verse 20 he says Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 tells us that the idolatry of the man of sin, who takes the place of God in the church, we just described that, is by the working of Satan. Big surprise. He sets up a kingdom of religious idolatry with a figurehead who receives divine worship. False worship, religious idolatry, is devil worship. And 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, 
actually informs us that this great apostasy elsewhere described in 2 Thessalonians 2, listen to this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, so false doctrine, false gospel, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared as with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created, just on Fridays, I guess, but um, this is describing the great apostasy that is elsewhere depicted in the Scriptures. But notice, doctrine of demons. In Greek, and in Greek culture, the word demon does not simply refer to a false, uh, you know, an evil angel, one of Satan's minions, but it refers to a false intermediary god, a lesser god. In Acts 17, when Paul preaches Jesus and the resurrection and the Greek philosophers accuse him of preaching false gods, that word gods there in Acts 17 is demons. This is a word that was used for intermediary gods who receive worship, who bring you closer to the true God. And so what it's saying here is doctrines of demons, not just doctrines that Satan and the demons have come up with, He already made that point, deceiving spirits. But this is saying doctrines of intermediary lesser gods that factor into your relationship with the true God. And that's exactly why pagan worship is devil worship because it's the demons who are seeking to be the recipients of these things. And it's the same in the Christian church when idolatry is brought in. Uh, But at at the end of the day, it's not just devil worship, it's self-worship. Notice, man makes these idols, verse 23, and man makes them like himself. Now, he does make images in the form of various four-footed animals and insects and things like that. But, first on the list, he's making God into his own image. So God created man in God's own image and man has, as has often been said, has returned the favor and is now recreating God after man's own image. Self-worship. And when they make God to be like themselves, what happens? The sort of God that they make is a lifeless God. Now, we've, we sang in Psalm 115, and you, you can uh, see when we conclude the service from Psalm 135, that those who worship false gods, dead gods, are dead themselves. And our psalm translation makes it appear that if you worship dead gods, you become dead. And I'm not denying that. But I'm not sure that the grammar of the actual Hebrew there is telling us that these uh, worshipers of dead gods become dead. I think it could just as easily be flipped around that Dead worshipers worship dead gods. People that don't have a living relationship with the true God make a God like themselves. They make a dead God because they're dead. They're making God in their own image. They're spiritually dead. And so dead sinners create dead idols. And yes, that goes on to have a deadening effect upon the visible church. Dead idols produce spiritual deadness and lethargy. Absolutely. 
But recognize that it's just as much the case that dead sinners, unregenerate people produce idolatry, dead gods, dead and deadening forms of religious idolatry. We make these gods like ourselves. Psalm 50, you thought that I was like you, God says. But you're going to get a wake-up call when I tear you apart limb from limb. My friends, we cannot fall prey to the self-worship, to the self-adulation, to the self-congratulation of religious idolatry where we make God out to be who we are, what we desire in accordance with our own self-worship. Finally, and and we'll leave it here for next time, uh, I've already mentioned this, but I just want to make this point finally, is that this is dead worship. Religious idolatry produces dead worship. I've already made that point, but I want to make this crystal clear. People come into the life of the church, they say, let's liven things up. Let's liven things up and let's bring things into the worship of the church that will stir people up in their five senses through rock and roll music or through visual aids and stimuli and all kinds of things stirring up the five senses, the natural senses of the natural unconverted man so that things are interesting and so that this person can keep track of what's happening and so on and so forth. But when we seek to liven things up according to religious idolatry, we actually deaden the church. We deaden the spirituality. We addict the church to... You know, it's almost like drugs. You keep giving them to people, now they can't do without them. Uh, you got to be careful. You drink too much caffeine. If you don't get the caffeine, you'll fall asleep. We, we inject religious innovations into the worship of the church to the point where people actually couldn't sit through a biblical worship service. They need the stimulation. They need another injection. They need all of these things to stay outwardly awake and paying attention. But my friends... If that is the case, that really means when you take the drug away, the person's dead. Or at best, a lethargic believer. Idols are not going to increase, but rather diminish the spirituality and the liveliness, the true spiritual liveliness of the church. More can and will be said on that. I'm going to leave it there. But my friends, recognize the dangers here. Recognize that when we bring things in to replace God, we lose God. You replace the Holy Spirit, He's going to say, okay. He steps aside. He gives you your innovations. He gives you your idolatry. He gives you your bass-thumping worship. And He sits off to the side. My friends, we need to push these things out so that we can bring in. And we've pushed them out, right? For the most part, I would think. Our worship service... Uh, has been uh, decluttered of many of the unbiblical practices. But understand the purpose for which we did that is not just to sit here and pat ourselves on the back. It's so that God will be here. It's so that when somebody walks in, they will see God is among us. It's so that when you, you hear the word preached, you're listening for the voice of God in your conscience. You're worshiping God. You're singing His praise. You're experiencing His presence. You're preparing for it. And afterward, you're taking it in and receiving it and munching on it, chewing on it, meditating upon it. 
There's no point in ridding the church of idolatry if we don't do it to fill the vacuum and the void with the presence of God Himself. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that You would be present in our midst. We're not saying that You're not present. We thank You for the presence You manifest. But we pray for more. Help us to declutter our hearts and minds of distractions. Help us to come to worship, ready to have dealings with the living God. We pray that You would teach and instruct us that we would not be intellectual idolaters, but that we, like the Lord Jesus, would say, not my will, but Your will be done. Enable us to avoid that path of misery and grief for those who run after idols, and rather to follow that path of life and glory and blessedness in Your holy presence where there is fullness of joy. In Jesus' name, amen.